um, you can probably tell that my voice is a little goofy, and I apologize for that, but this is the best we can do today, okay? So just hang in here with me, and um, I'm about an octave lower than normal, which is hard to believe, right? But that's how it goes. So um, before we get started on today's lesson, um, let's pray for just a minute. Father, we, um, as we approach the end of the book of Ruth this week and next week, Lord, we want to praise you for the story that you allowed us to have to show us a picture of Jesus. We thank you for all the things that we have learned and will learn today in this book. Um, Lord, we thank you that the truth of your word transforms our lives. And so now, Lord, will you um, just make the thoughts that I bring, the meditations of my heart, acceptable to you. May you be praised and glorified in this room, and may we all, Lord, at the end of our study this morning, know you a little bit better. And we ask that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So <clears throat> how many of you in this room um, have either now or at some point in your life you liked to watch Survivor. This is a raise your hands thing. Lisa Giller, I see you back there going like, like this. All right, just get them up there, girls. Wave them high. Wave them high. Okay. How many of you have never had any interest in Survivor? Okay. You are equally as legitimate, okay? Now, so here's the deal, and here's why I'm asking you about Survivor <clears throat> this morning. Survivor has now been on for like 20, 20 years. Okay, so they're on, they're, they do two seasons a year. They're on like what number? 45, 45 seasons. So here's what we know. Here's what we know. Somebody is watching Survivor. If it isn't you, there's a whole bunch of other people out there that are watching Survivor. So one of my sons loves Survivor. And he and I have had many conversations back and forth about the tone that the show sometimes takes because I don't especially enjoy the parts where people are like, you know, tricking each other and doing like really mean, I mean, I understand the goal is to win the money, right? It's all about the money, but I just, I have a hard time with that. So when I came across this story, I have to tell you this story. So in 2005, <clears throat> there was a young man who was on Survivor and he, um, he was not one of the players that was easily getting in the groove of blindsiding and ruthless behavior and things like that. And actually, when Survivor first started, in at least in my opinion, it was not nearly as bad as it is now. It kind of has grown in its ruthlessness and um, I don't even know, self-interest, I guess, is the other word I would use. But this young man was on Survivor. This isn't going to work until I make it go back here. Hold on. One moment, please. There we go. 
now it'll go. All right, this is Ian Rosenberger. And Ian Rosenberger was young when he was on Survivor in 2005. Today he looks like that. But so here's what happened to Ian. He did age well, didn't he? Yes, yes. So he was 23 years old at the time. And what ended up happening to him was the further he went in the process of Survivor, does anybody remember him? No, okay. Um, the further he went in the process, the more things began to eat at him just a little bit. So what happened was in December of 2005, Ian, in the last immunity challenge of the game, and for those of you who are not Survivor watchers, you participate in this series of challenges. I'm going to sound like I watch this show and I never watch this show. <laughs> Okay, you participate in this series of challenges to see who can last the longest while you are both employing your own ability and you are tricking and trying to move other people out of the game, okay? So if you win an immunity challenge, it means that you go on to the next round automatically. So it's a big deal, okay, because there's a million dollars at the end. So... The immunity challenge, they were at the end of the show, three contestants remaining. Immunity challenge was, get this, to hang on to an ocean buoy off the coast of Palau in the Western Pacific Ocean for 12 hours. Hey, Ann, I'm not going forward here. Can you help me? Huh. I don't know. There we are. There we are hanging onto ocean buoys. Thank you, Ann. Okay, so actually it looks pretty calm in this photograph right here. But what began to happen was since they were out there for 12 hours, the weather changed. It got, the waves came up, the winds blew, it rained, all that kind of stuff. So they literally were hanging on for dear life at some points. So... <clears throat> After five hours, one of these people is a woman right here. She dropped out. So the two people who remained were Ian and a fellow by the name of Tom Westman, and they had become very close friends in the course of the game. They were on the same team. They had become very close friends. But here's what happened for Ian that he did not predict. So he's hanging on to this buoy out in the middle of the Pacific well, he's not exactly in the middle. He's sort of off the island. Anyway, and he's alone with his thoughts because they can't talk to each other. You know, they're just hanging around. And all of a sudden, he starts thinking about the way that he has played the game thus far and how much this million dollars really means to him. And he knows that if he hangs in there, there's a way for him to eliminate his friend Tom and win the game. He knows he can do this. Because, but he does, he also knows that his to friend Tom is the biggest threat. The little woman who's out there, I guess she's, he, he's writing her off. And she drops out. Okay. So now he's out there and it's just the two of them. And what Ian, what begins to happen to Ian is he begins to think about what he's been doing, how he's been backstabbing people how he's planning on doing that very same thing to this fellow that he's become good friends with. 
He realizes that if he carries that all the way through, he's likely to lose that friendship. And he starts thinking about what it would feel like to pull that money out of his ATM when he gets back home and how's he, how he's going to feel about pulling that money out, knowing what he did to get it. And then he starts thinking about his younger siblings and his family and friends at home and what they must be thinking about the way he's playing the game and what they'll be thinking as he goes forward. And what happens is his character and his conscience begins to take over and he realizes he can't go forward. So what he does is he convinces his friend Tom. He, he, he goes to his friend Tom and says, I'm going to quit the game. I want you to eliminate me when we get back on the island, and then I want this, this woman to go through with you. And Tom says, you know, are you nuts? And Ian says, listen, I just need for it to go this way. Now, what prompted him to do that? I don't know that Ian Rosenberger was a believer then or that he is now. But what he was, was he was a young man who had grown up in a home with some values. He was an Eagle Scout, for those of you that have known Eagle Scouts. And so he knew what it meant to be trustworthy and loyal and honest and kind to other people. And he just couldn't do it. His character was speaking louder than the million dollars was speaking to him. When he was interviewed later, <coughs> he, he said that he couldn't say that the million dollars wouldn't still come in handy, but that he did not regret his decision. Because if you can imagine a 23-year-old saying this, it's only a million bucks. I'll just eat some more ramen noodles. Now, <clears throat> I tell you that this morning, not just to talk about Survivor, but to talk about what it means to be a person who knows how to live a life of integrity. And the reason I've landed on integrity this morning is because as I prepared for this morning's lesson, I could not help but come back time and time again to the character of Ruth and Boaz in this story. And Naomi as well, as she goes through the circumstances that she does. But I kept thinking about, you know, we don't often see a lot of people in our culture anymore who we would truly describe as people of integrity. We see a lot of ruthlessness. We see a lot of self-interest. We see a lot of people who would say, it doesn't matter how I have to do it. I want to get that job. I want that salary. I want that person. I want whatever. And they'll do whatever it takes to get there. But this morning, what I would really like for us to do is as we finish up chapter three and go into chapter four, I'd like for us to take a look at some of the unique things that are happening in this chapter. <clears throat> and Chris Payne kind of set me up on Sunday morning. So kudos to Chris. You can all tell him he was quoted in Flourish on Tuesday morning. He's now famous in a whole new way. He said this on Sunday morning. You may remember. 
He said, when you live your life as God has told you to, most of your decisions are already made. We don't have a knowledge problem. We have an obedience problem. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. You know, it's not that we don't know the right thing to do. Generally, we do. It's that sometimes we just don't want to do it. So we look for what we think will be an acceptable compromise. Only that compromise, more often than not, really means we're being disobedience. disobedient. So here are some of the unique happenings I want us to talk about. And I want us to decide, is integrity unique or does it really exist around us? And hopefully the answer to that is yes. So here are some of the things that are happening in this story. Now, you know the story. You studied it. But we know that Ruth has gone to Boaz in the night. We know that she has proposed marriage. And he tells her to stay until the morning. And then when she gets up in the morning, he says, get up and leave before anyone knows that you've been to the threshing floor. He is trying to maintain her reputation, his reputation, and he gives her six more measures of grain. And we don't know how big this measure is, but what we do know is that it fills her shawl and he has to help her lift it onto her back. So once again, it's a good big quantity of grain. And more than likely, Boaz, as he was interacting with Ruth, Kristen covered this for you last week, he knew that Naomi had been behind the plan. And he recognizes that Naomi is still trying to fill that void that she came back to Bethlehem with. She was empty when she returned. So every time Boaz gives more to Ruth, he is fulfilling a portion of being her redeemer for Naomi because he's taking her from empty to full. Now, so when Ruth leaves him and goes home and tells Naomi all that has happened, Naomi is now satisfied to wait. And she advises Ruth, let's just wait because he'll do this and he won't be settled until he gets this resolved. The same way that Naomi is going to be filled in this story is exactly the way God promises you and me fullness in Christ Jesus. And the same way that Naomi advised Ruth, we need to wait, we need to be calm, we need to try to be patient, is the very thing that we're told over and over in Scripture. Wait on the Lord, and then we will see his plan unfold. That doesn't mean that we have a promise in our lives of no more sorrow, no more loss, no pain ever entering again. But what it does mean is that we have the promise from God that emptiness will never be what's in our hearts. It will never overtake us again. He has promised us fullness in Christ Jesus. Now, the other thing that we can see about Boaz in this story that I admire is Boaz is determined to solve the issue of the kinsman redeemer. And not only is he determined, but he gets up the next morning and he is ready to follow through 
to what he is committed to do. You know, not everybody follows through when they make a promise or a commitment, do they? But Boaz is up and at it the next morning. And although all of the men in the city would have passed through this gate to go out into the fields to work for the day, it is no coincidence that as Boaz sits down at the time that he's chosen, that this other person presents himself and is walking through the gate, the other one who could be the kinsman redeemer, the one who has no name. We have no idea who this guy is, but here he comes, and Boaz is waiting for him. And Boaz isn't just waiting for him, but Boaz has thought this through. He immediately goes and gets the 10 elders that he needs to be credible witnesses so that they can verify what's about to happen. And and undoubtedly, Boaz has chosen 10 elders that he knows are credible, honest men who people will not doubt when they say, this is what I witnessed. The same way that Jesus chose 12 apostles who would be with him every step of the way, and what would they do? They would testify to what they had witnessed. They would say, here's what I saw, here's what he did. So everything that Boaz does on this morning is open and above board. And he patiently waits on this other kinsman redeemer with no name to reveal himself. So the other redeemer, as soon as Boaz presents, would you like to buy Elimelech's land? What's his answer? Sure, let's go for it. Right. And he's all in at this moment. Why is he all in? Exactly. Because what does this mean? He's going to add another piece of property to his portfolio. And for the time that he owns it, it will only bring him profit and gain. So he's thinking, hey, I'll be the kinsman redeemer. Only then Boaz goes to the next step. And he says to him, now remember, there's one more ingredient in this. Because if you redeem the land, it also means that you will marry Ruth and you will give her a son to keep Elimelech's family name going. And now what happens? The backpedaling begins, right? So it was all, it was all great until he had to marry a foreign woman and perhaps disrupt the inheritance that would go to his own children. He's not willing to make any sacrifice in this. It's only about his self-interest. The cost is too high. But you know what? The cost isn't too high for Boaz. And it's interesting at this time that we we don't really know anything about Boaz's life circumstances. We don't know if he has a wife. We don't know if he's a widower. We don't know if he has children already. And really and truly, if you, if you read anything online that tries to give you that information, it's just been conjured in someone's head because we really cannot know these things. But what we find out about Boaz next is, you know what? It obviously doesn't matter to him because he is willing to give all that's required. 
He will preserve Elimelech's name. He will redeem Naomi and Ruth from debt and poverty. He will fulfill whatever responsibility is required of him. And so when he agrees to marry Ruth, this is so important. What he does is he takes this Moabite woman who has faith in God, but by marrying her, he takes her and he moves her from the outside to the inside of the community. He makes her an insider through his grace, but there is a larger picture of how that happens for every single one of us by the grace of God. You know, there are times that um, we can act inappropriately by choosing something that is a shallow redeemer in our lives. We don't think of it in those words, but we can choose something that brings us pleasure for a time, that appeals to our intellect, some kind of lesser spirituality perhaps, that we just feel good about it for a while. And we let that take precedence over our relationship with God. But the truth is that Boaz shows us right here exactly what God wants us to know about the way he acts toward us. No matter what his sacrifice had to be, no matter what had to be given, he was willing to give it all for my sake and your sake. As unfaithful and sinful and squirrely as we can be from time to time, he was willing to give it all. He was rich and became poor. He came to earth to share our humanness and became our kinsman redeemer. He paid in full to remove our debt. And what did he do in that process? He took us from the outside and he brought us inside. Now, how do we do that? We certainly don't do that through any work of our own. We do it the same way Ruth did it. We do it because of the grace and the work of our kinsman redeemer. So just as Boaz settled that matter for Ruth and Naomi, Jesus settles it for us. And the one other thing that I would point you to in the book of Ruth is just, you know, we get this picture of these two coming together in marriage and Boaz is willing to care for her. He knows it's going to cost him something. He does it anyway. He's willing to give her a son that will allow her husband's name to stand. And all of this happens within this design of marriage. And marriage is so often used in scripture as God's example for our relationship as part of the church with the Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, in the book of Ruth, we have one more picture of something that is coming in the future with Jesus Christ and the way that his union with the church is a picture of marriage. He doesn't love us from a distance. He loves us the way a bridegroom loves his bride. So here are a few integrity lessons for us to take away today, just some good practical application. Remember, first of all, that we are talking about the time, remember we've said this a few times now, 
at, during the time of the judges, and in the book of Judges, what it told us was that everyone who was living at this time was doing what they saw fit for themselves, kind of like the way we live today. Well, I'm going to do what's right for me. I'm going to do what's best for me. So just like today, when every message around us seems to be about my happiness, my success, my beautiful family, when every product advertisement tells us that the reason we're not yet satisfied is because we haven't invested here or eaten over there at that new spot or bought clothes at this site online, or we haven't traveled to the most unique place lately. This list goes on and on and on. We worry when our kids don't have the newest. We worry when they pressure us about things that everybody else is doing, but we're not sure we want them to do. But the truth of the matter is, ladies, let's go back to what Chris told us on Sundays. Generally, we already know what's right. And how do we know that? We know that because the Lord Jesus is living in our lives. And the very things that are ingrained in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, integrity, honesty, wisdom, love, patience, all these things are already grounded in there. So very often we struggle with decisions that we really shouldn't have to struggle with. We're struggling because we know the right answer and we're trying to talk ourselves out of it. And we're trying to decide if there's another way to go around the bend. But I am so impressed with Ruth and Boaz throughout this story because we don't see a lot of that going on. Boaz is on the threshing floor and a young woman half his age approaches him in the middle of the night. He never makes one advance. There is nothing in their conversation that suggests this. All he does is he responds in a way to keep her reputation solid. And in that moment, he even praises her for the kind of woman that she is. And if you don't think living in that time was the same as living now, you might be thinking, well, you know, it was probably easier then. You know, all those boundaries were, they were set. People didn't do goofy things, right? Okay, well, remember, we're talking about the time of the judges, okay? So in this same period of years when Ruth and Boaz are maintaining lives of integrity, Samson is somewhere in a bedroom with Delilah. <laughs> and it's not going well. At least it's not going well for Samson. It's going very well for Delilah because she talks him out of all his secrets. And he completely loses and forfeits his gifts from the Lord that enabled him to lead and serve as a judge because he gives in to the wiles of a woman. It's all over the place. It doesn't matter the century or the generation. It's all over the place. Ruth, at this point in time, could have been chasing any man in Bethlehem. I'm just going out on a limb here to say there might have been some 42-year-olds who were better looking than Boaz. Because Boaz is like 70 or 80 years old at this point in time. 
But she's not looking around. She is willing to follow Naomi's instructions. She is willing to believe in the plan that God has. And she is willing to be his partner when she meets him in the middle of the night. They literally agree to a plan of purity and how to move forward together. There isn't any discussion of, hey, you want to sneak off into the corner. So I've got some questions for you as we think about that. They are acting completely with the best interest of the other one in their minds. They are acting on behalf of the other. Do we act in good faith for others? Do we support them? Do we work with them to help them achieve the path that God wants them on? Do we turn away from everyone else is doing it? Or when it's become acceptable to do something, do we still stand up for what we know is right? The next thing they do that are acts of integrity is one more time we go back to Hesed. They show us all about loyalty and love. They show true concern for each other. And Boaz shows this not only just for Ruth, but for her mother-in-law as well. Boaz is getting one big package deal right here. And hopefully the fact that Naomi has moved beyond her bitterness is making her a much more pleasant person to live with because, you know, mother-in-laws can be tricky. But what does he do? He doesn't just feed them. But he becomes her husband. He restores the clan. He restores Elimelech's name. He gives her a baby, a son, who although he remains the biological father of that child, he is giving that son over to carry on another man's name. And those of us in the room who know men know that that would not have been the easiest decision to make. The commitment that he makes, also remember this, the commitment that Boaz makes at this moment, it is irrevocable. He cannot turn back. There is no escape here. So ask yourself these questions. Do we exhibit that kind of concern for others when we're likely to get nothing in return or when we may have to sacrifice to be helpful? Are we all in when we know there is no easy way out of a situation? Do we follow Jesus' command to Hesed, to love others the way he loved us? And then finally, there's integrity going on around them with the blessings and the affirmations that others are giving them as Ruth and Boaz do the right thing in this situation. The elders speak blessings over Boaz. They say, may Ruth be blessed with children who will build up Israel. May your reputation be solid. May you be well respected because of your actions. They could only say that if, in fact, he was showing integrity in his actions. May your offspring be righteous like Perez. We'll talk about Perez next week. And after the birth of Obed... The women bless Naomi. They praise God for the kinsman redeemer. 
They say, may he become famous. May he sustain you through your old age. And I love it when they say to her, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. In her faithfulness, she has done this for you. The grace of God is what is better than seven sons because that's how all this is happening. But let's ask ourselves this morning, do we verbally affirm others? Do we tell, as Boaz said to Ruth, you are a woman of substantial character. Do you look for, do I look for intentional moments when I can say to somebody, you know, here's what I see in you, and this is a wonderful thing, and here's how you're showing up right now, and it's incredible that you do these things for people. Are our lives lives of faith that are expressed in deeds to help and support other people? Do we rejoice and bless when good things happen to other people and not to us? Or do we just feel left out and discontent? Do we help them to appreciate and praise God for the way he's provided? And finally, Ruth, and especially Ruth, did the right thing in this story without expectation. And this is a biggie. I want to close on this thought this morning. Ruth did the right thing all along, never expecting that it was going to make her life easy, that she was immediately going to have a husband, that food was going to appear on the table. Ruth decided to do the right thing simply because she knew it was the right thing to do in God's eyes. And she made that commitment early on in the first chapter. Remember when she said, nothing but death will keep me from doing what I'm promising today that I will do for you. Boaz, in spite of the way that others were running their fields, he's running his fields the right way. He's leaving things behind for the poor. He's treating his workers fairly. He's making a commitment and keeping it. That's what it looks like in our lives when God is central. Because when God is central in my life, in your life, then we don't look like the culture. We look like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not thinking of ourselves based on all the messages that come at us every day. We're not basing um, the definition of ourselves on perfect bodies, perfect careers, perfect social lives. We're not worrying about how we are reviewed online by others, how many likes we have, how many social media accounts we're on, whether or not we bought the right face cream off of Instagram last night. We begin thinking that our struggles will not leave us empty because God is there to fill that space. You see, when the gospel takes over in our lives, it blasts all that other stuff apart. When the gospel is right within us, we are free in heart, free in relationships, and we stop worrying. Please hear this. This is a really important little phrase. We stop worrying about inconsequential things which we spend so much time on. So the question is, 
how much do I rely on what others think of me? How much time do I spend looking at a screen to see what others are saying about a whole variety of things? Versus how much time do I spend focused on God's description of me and on being transformed and freed from the world's standards? Is doing the right thing with no expectations becoming more of a way of life for me? Do I keep my commitments? Do I practice honesty and patience without self-interest? All of that stacks up to the uniqueness of integrity, but it also stacks up to the life that God desires us to live. And one of the things that I think we could all say as we wrap up the book of Ruth is that Ruth and Boaz were intentionally people of integrity. They knew what the right thing was, and they did it. Now, just one more thought as we finish this morning. Ruth, as we end chapter 4, she becomes just like a number of other women in Scripture. She joins the club of one of those women who has a child of God's choosing when it was highly unlikely that that was ever going to be in her future again. But let's remember who it is who's guiding this story and who is the hero in this story. We all love Boaz. I mean, you can't help but love Boaz, right? But Boaz is motivated and taught and led by God. God provides the kinsman redeemer. God enables Ruth to conceive. God does all these things. And unbeknownst at this moment to any of the characters in this story, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, all those women that were hanging around to see that little baby, all those elders who were sitting at the gates, none of them realize the bigger plan that they have just been witnesses to. Because this little baby boy named Obed, which means servant, you don't hear very many children named Obed these days. This little baby boy, Obed, he will be used of God to bring the ultimate kinsman redeemer into the world. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray, ladies, before you go to your groups. Father, um, we're just so grateful this morning that you sent your son to be our kinsman redeemer. Lord, I pray that we, now that we know this truth from your word, that you will remind us of it regularly. And Lord, that we will walk every day knowing that Jesus gave it all for us. In his precious name we pray. Amen.